Hey guys, welcome to our next session in Introduction to the New Testament. Uh, today we're going to look at the um, acts of Jesus, what Jesus did. Share my screen with you guys. Here's screen. One second. All right. Okay, so what Jesus did. This is actually topic three. Sometimes my slides are a little bit different because I've done these slides with a full course so that you might see the topic number different, but it's essentially the same material, just compressed. So what Jesus did in the gospel. So the last thing we saw were the infancy narratives when Jesus was a baby. And the only other event other than Jesus's infancy was Jesus 12 years old in the temple. After that, the Gospels tell us that Jesus begins to reveal himself in his public ministry when he was about 30 years old. So he's about 30 years old, the Bible tells us, and he starts to reveal himself to the world. So we're going to look at Jesus's acts or what he does, and we're going to look at his teachings, his uh, deeds and his words. So in this topic, we're going to look at what Jesus did. Okay, so I have some slides. If you look here what Jesus did, the miracles of Christ. So I'm going to open those. You can open those. So before we get to Jesus's miracles, the first event that we have right before Jesus's public ministry is the preaching and the baptizing of St. John, who we call John the Baptist. He's actually the final prophet. He's the one Remember, all the prophets prepare the way for the Messiah. Well, John is directly preparing the way for the Messiah because right after him, Jesus comes. So he's the final prophet of the old covenant. And we call him an antitype of Elijah. An antitype, remember, is a fulfillment of a type in the Old Testament. And Elijah dressed in a similar way that John does. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Um, and he dressed in a, uh, a hairy robe and he had a leather sash around his waist. And we'll see John described as dressing in camel's hair with a leather, leather sash, a uh, leather belt, I should say, around his waist, not a sash, but a belt. Um, and like Elijah, who was trying to bring people back to Yahweh, John is preaching a baptism of repentance to prepare people for the Messiah. Now, John's baptism is not a sacrament. It's merely a ritual to make the people understand their sins and to repent and to get ready for the Messiah who will truly forgive them of their sins. Um, so the first uh, thing we see of Jesus is he appears when John is preaching and baptizing. And Jesus asks John to baptize him. Now, Jesus does not need baptism. He has no sin to repent of. But the reason why Jesus wants John to baptize him is Jesus wants to identify himself with us. Um, and he wants people to see an example. And Jesus's example is something that we want to imitate. So if Jesus, the son of God, the sinless one, receives baptism, obviously the sacrament of baptism that Jesus gives us is something that we want to receive. Uh, so John resembles Elijah. And um, the last prophet in the Old Testament um, is Malachi. And Malachi promises that Elijah would return to earth. And of course, the last prophet of the old covenant who's mentioned in the New Testament is John the Baptist. And he 
is deliberately like Elijah to show he's a new Elijah. Uh, and Elijah's role is to prepare the way for the Messiah. So John is a new Elijah who prepares the way for the Messiah. So Jesus is baptized by John, and immediately after his baptism, Jesus goes into the desert to fast for 40 days. Now, why does Jesus go into the desert for 40 days? Well, remember, Moses and Elijah both fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, uh, and the people of Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, the reason why they wandered is they gave into evil. They gave into the temptation of Satan um, by worshiping Baal and by worshiping the golden calf and sinning against the Lord. So they had to wander for 40 years, a journey that should have taken a few months. Um, so Jesus is showing that he is um, the new Israel, whereas the old Israel is unfaithful in the desert. Jesus is going to be faithful in the desert. He will overcome the temptations of Satan. Uh, remember, he's a new Adam. Whereas the old Adam gave into the temptations of Satan, Jesus will, will resist the temptations of Satan in the desert. And whereas Israel gave in to sin in the desert, Jesus will be faithful to God in the desert. So Jesus uh, in the desert uh, re rebuffs Satan's three temptations, and he overcomes Satan to show that he is the new Adam, the new Israel, the faithful suffering servant of God, because he's fasting in the desert. So he's atoning and he's fasting for his people. He's suffering. Um, and Jesus, of course, will suffer greatly at the end of his life on the cross. So God is preparing him for his mission. Jesus is accepting his mission when he's baptized to serve the father. And Jesus is accepting his mission of suffering and faithfulness in the desert. So right after Jesus' desert experience, he starts to do what's called miracles. And his first miracle is done at the request of his mother, Mary. And this miracle is changing water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And we'll see that this is a foreshadow of the sacrament of the Eucharist. Um, so let's take a look at that first miracle. Now, before we actually uh, look at the miracle, I probably... Here. I probably should go into with, with you what, what miracles actually are, okay? Um, so I have a reading here, the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, the start of Jesus's public life is his baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. As you read this story, notice the words that are heard from the heavens. So when Jesus is baptized, if you go to Mark 1.11, a voice is heard, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The words echo the promise that God makes to David's son, that he will be God's son and that he will rule the nations in Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. So following his baptism, Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So here we see emerge another theme in the gospel's presentation of Jesus, a new Moses, the representative of a new Israel, the new beloved son of God. Um, so if you look closely, you notice parallels between Jesus and Moses. We've seen them in the infancy narratives already. So like Moses, Jesus uh, is in the desert. Um, and he will liberate God's people just as Moses liberated God's people in the Old Testament. Um, and they will 
cross through the Red Sea into the desert to be tested for 40 years. Jesus goes through the waters of baptism, the Jordan, and he's driven into the desert to be tempted and tried by the devil for 40 days and nights. So is it just a coincidence? No, not a chance. So Jesus is tempted in the desert, just like Israel. Uh, first, he's confronted with hunger because he's fasting. So the devil tempts him, as Israel was, to grumble against God. Remember, Israel complained that they were hungry in the desert. They rebelled against God. Uh, next, Satan dares Jesus to put God to the test, to demand that God prove his promise to care for him. Israel also underwent a similar temptation when the people started fighting with Moses at Massa. They were testing God. Finally, Jesus is tempted to worship a false god, which Israel actually did in creating the idol of the golden calf. But unlike Israel, who failed, and like, unlike Adam, who failed, Jesus, is, Jesus answers each temptation with a quote from the Old Testament. But not just any quote. He's actually quoting Moses. Um, and not randomly. It's the book of Deuteronomy, the very book where Moses is telling Israel what they are to learn from their rebellion to God, how they are to be faithful to God. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy to rebuff Satan's temptations. So now we move into the miracles. Okay. So Jesus is, as we said, the son of David and the son of God. He's the Messiah that was long anticipated by the faithful of Israel. He comes to his people like Moses as a liberator and a savior. Um, and like Moses, Jesus fasts for 40 days and nights alone in the wilderness. Like Moses, he climbs a mountain to give the people a new law, delivering what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So we see these parallels. So Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And this is the center of why Jesus does miracles. Um, and his apostles also, Jesus gives them authority to do miracles. So Jesus' preaching of his kingdom, his kingdom of God on earth, which is his church, we'll see, is accompanied by miraculous healings. And Jesus does these miracles in a different way uh, than as usually portrayed in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the prophets ask God for the power to do miracles. In the New Testament, Jesus does the miracles on his own authority to show that he's divine. He says, I say to you, walk, or I say to you, your sins are forgiven. This shows Jesus's divinity. The miracles are never done to bring glory to Jesus or to amaze his audience or to kind of show off, if you will. The miracles are always done to bring God's kingdom into focus, to deliver people from evils, to deliver people from Satan and possession, from death, from disease, uh, and to show what God's kingdom means. So the miracles teach us something as well. That's why we can benefit from them, not just the people that had the miracle performed for them. Finally, the miracles require faith in the people that want them done. And they require our faith as well to see the message of the kingdom behind the miracles. So Jesus makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. He gives eyesight to the blind who call out to him, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. So Jesus accompanies his words with many mighty works, wonders, and signs. Uh, this, what a, this is what a miracle is. It's a mighty work, a wonder, a sign. They manifest that the kingdom is present in Jesus and attest that he was the promised Messiah. They attest that the Father has sent him. They invite belief in him. 
To those who turn to him in faith, he grants what they ask. So miracles strengthen the faith in the one who does his father's works. They bear witness that Jesus is the son of God, but his miracles can also be occasions for offense. They're not intended to satisfy people's curiosity or the desire for magic. Despite his evident miracles, some people will still reject Jesus. He's even accused of acting by the power of demons. So people can't deny the miracles, but people don't, who don't believe in Jesus attribute the miracles to Satan. So by freeing some individuals from the earthly evils of hunger, injustice, illness, and death, Jesus performs messianic signs. Nevertheless, he did not come to abolish all evils here below, but to free men from the greatest slavery, sin, which thwarts them in their vocation as God's sons, then causes all forms of human bondage. So the coming of God's kingdom means the defeat of Satan's. If it is by the spirit of God, says Jesus, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus' exorcisms free some individuals from the domination of demons. They anticipate Jesus' great victory over the ruler of this world, Satan. The kingdom of God will be definitively established through Christ's cross. God reigns from the wood. So these essentially are why Jesus does the miracles. And if you look at this section here, we go to the E-class. Examples of miracles in the gospel. I'd like you to read. We can't do all the miracles. Um, but we have um, basically four types of miracles that Jesus performs. Exorcism miracles, where he frees people from the power of demons and evil and Satan. Resurrection miracles, where he frees people from death. Nature miracles, where he shows his power over creation as the divine creator and healing miracles in which he frees people from diseases, um, any type of um, uh, things that are debilitating, like uh, blindness or lameness, uh, handicaps, right? Uh, so these are the healing miracles. So these are the four miracles, and they all show Jesus's power as the divine son of God, but they also teach us things. He has power over Satan. He has power over death. He has power over nature. And he has power over our lives. And this shows that Jesus comes to destroy evil and sin in the world. Uh, he is powerful over evil. He will free us from death. He will reestablish creation the way God intended. And he will reestablish humanity the way God intended before the fall by redeeming us and giving us the kingdom of heaven, which starts on earth through his church. So the miracles teach us. So um, if you read these, uh, you will see an example of each of them. So the wedding feast at Cana, for example, uh, Jesus changes water into wine. And his mother intercedes. He said, she says they have no more wine. And Jesus does the miracle through the intercession of his mother. And by changing water into wine, he's showing his power over nature. So it would be a nature miracle. But it also points to the change that he will give us his body and blood in the Eucharist. So if he can change water into wine, 
he will one day change bread and wine into his body and blood. So it is a sign of the Eucharist, Jesus's power over creation to give us life. Um, so read an example of each of these miracles and you will see uh, how uh, God's power is manifested in each of them. Okay. Uh, the next thing Jesus does is he goes to the temple and he notices that people are buying and selling animals. And Jesus drives them out because they're cheating people. The pilgrims had to buy animals to sacrifice to God. And also they're creating a distraction to worship. And Jesus begins to make enemies here. He drives them out of the temple and says, stop making my father's house a marketplace. Um, and Jesus shows his authority here that he's reforming the abuses of God's people. And he's going to create a new temple, which his body is a sign of, which is the church. Um, and he will start preaching and he will basically make his home uh, kind of quarters, his headquarters in Galilee, um, which Isaiah prophesied in the Old Testament, a light would come from Galilee. And Jesus goes to a little town called Capernaum, which was a fishing village. And a lot of his public ministry is pretty much focused in the beginning in that northern region, which we call Galilee, which is in the north of the Holy Land. And then towards the end of his ministry, he will move towards preaching in Jerusalem, where he will, of course, suffer and die for us. So his headquarters is Capernaum. Uh, Cana's where he does his first miracle. He changes water into wine. Uh, he also goes to places like Tyre, Mount Hermon, Mount Tabor. Um, a place called Nain, where he does a resurrection miracle and heals, uh, excuse me, raises a widow's son from the dead. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is another important place where Peter will become the rock on which Jesus will build his church. So because sickness was bound up with sin, the Jews expected the Messiah to cure the sick, which Jesus did. But he also forgave sins which earned him the accusation of blasphemy from his enemies, mainly among the Pharisees and the scribes. He also cast out demons, which earned him the slander of being in league with Satan. So Christ is making enemies by doing good. He's associating with sinners, with women, with Samaritans. These were the outcasts. But Jesus comes for them. Jesus says it's the sick who need a doctor, not the well, not the healthy. And we see him choosing 12 apostles to follow him. And he, uses the 12 on purpose because he's, these are the new 12 tribes. They will be the authority of the church. Ordinary men, fishermen, a tax collector, Matthew, a zealot, uh, Simon, uh, simple men who Jesus will have them to be his witnesses and his followers, and they will be where he will pass his authority on. They will be the first bishops of the church. So his miracles are the signs of his kingdom. The Greek word for miracle is sign, simium. It points to a spiritual reality. Uh, it goes deeper than just the miracle. So Jesus accompanies his words with many mighty works and wonders and signs. So the miracles manifest his kingdom and attest that he's the Messiah. So the, the John especially calls them signs. Uh, in John's gospel, he uses the word signs for miracles because they... Um, they teach us. They're critical for faith. Um, just to have faith in Jesus as a miracle worker is not enough. Um, they point to a deeper significance. They point to Jesus's death, resurrection, ascension, 
the transformation brought by the new age of the spirit. They lead to faith in Jesus himself as the son of God, the savior. Um, so John wants to present the miracles as signs. He expounds meanings that are not immediately apparent. The nature miracles point to Jesus as the creator, the divine creator who reestablished creation. Uh, healing miracles, as again, point to Jesus' authority over sickness. Exorcisms, his authority over evil, his destruction of Satan's reign. Uh, and of course, his power over death by his three resurrection miracles, Lazarus, the widow of Nain's son, and um, raising the little girl, Jairus's daughter, the 12-year-old girl. So these attest that Jesus is the Messiah, okay? So illness was mysteriously linked to sin and evil. Only faithfulness to God and obedience to his law restored life. So some consider Jesus a blasphemer because not only did he heal people, but he forgave their sins because healing sickness was a sign of God forgiving sin. So he showed by performing impossible works that he had the authority to forgive sins because only God could heal. But many refused to believe. They accused him of doing the miracles through Satan. So he chooses 12 apostles that correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel which the Messiah was prophesied to bring together again. 12 is that perfect number in the Bible with respect to authority. Um, and he drew them from ordinary people, laborers, fishermen, to show that it's the simple and the humble that God uses to establish um, his reign, not the prideful. Okay, so that's going to conclude this lesson. So make sure you work on your homework. Um, and... Um, Take the quiz, and we'll see you next time for the next topic, okay? Uh, Godspeed.